Want more control over your life? You need more control over your money. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and that's why I started the Her Money Podcast. From understanding your money personality to taking steps to earn more, spend wisely, invest for tomorrow, and protect it all, I can help you get there. So join me. Subscribe to Her Money with Jean Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips so you can thrive whether you're in nursing school or working at the bedside. So today we are talking about epidermal necrolysis, or what you probably hear this referred to more as are the specific conditions, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. So when we refer to these together, we often refer to them as SJS and 10. So SJS is Stevens-Johnson syndrome and 10, T-E-N, is toxic epidermal necrolysis. Before we dive deep into it, let's start off with three stat facts about SJS and T-E-N. Number one, medications are the cause of Stevens-Johnson's and toxic epidermal necrolysis in over 80% of cases. Number two, Three commonly used medications that are frequent causes of SJS and TEN are phenytoin, which is a medication used to treat seizures, allopurinol, which is a medication used to treat gout, and sulfonamides, which are a class of antibiotics. And stat fact number three, the leading cause of death for someone with epidermal necrolysis or Stevens-Johnson syndrome or TEN is sepsis. Okay, so what is epidermal necrolysis? This refers to severe cutaneous reactions that cause extensive necrosis of tissue and detachment of the epidermis. It encompasses three conditions, which are on a continuum of severity related to how much of the body's surface area is affected. So if less than 10% of total body surface area is affected and detached, then that is Stevens-Johnson syndrome or SJS. If it's more than 30% of the body surface area that has become detached and is affected by this extensive necrosis, then that is TEN or toxic epidermal necrolysis. But what if it's in between that? Well, if it's between 10 and 30%, then it's called SJS TEN overlap. So epidermal necrolysis is a rare and painful condition that causes areas of the skin and mucous membranes to blister and peel and detach. Much like a burn, this causes significant fluid losses and puts the individual at high, high risk for infection and other life-threatening complications. It affects five to six individuals per million per year in the U.S. So let's talk a bit about the pathophysiology and the risk factors. So epidermal necrolysis, or SJS and TEN, is thought to occur when keratinocytes undergo apoptosis, which is that cell suicide, basically. They undergo apoptosis triggered by an inappropriate immune response that is often related to medications. Remember a moment ago, I said that 
over 80% of cases of SJS and TEN are related to medications. Apoptosis leads to the death of the affected tissue and eventual sloughing of the skin, so it becomes detached and sloughs off. While many medications can cause SJS or TEN, high-risk medications include monoclonal antibodies used to treat cancer, such as atezolizumab and ipilimumab. Patients taking these medications are four times more likely to develop SJS or TEN, and the overall mortality rate is 37%. Other high-risk medications include allopurinol, which is used to treat gout, anti-seizure medications like phenytoin, medications used to treat HIV, oxycams, which is a class of NSAIDs, and sulfonamides, which are a class of antibiotics. Now, in some cases, epidermal necrolysis is a result of infection. Vaccination, though that's very rare, has been reported, and it may even be idiopathic, meaning it has no clear underlying trigger. It may also be associated with an autoimmune condition, such as systemic lupus erythematosus. Epidermal necrolysis, or SJS and TEN, typically develops a few weeks after taking the triggering medication. It begins with prodromal symptoms that usually last two to three days before the skin becomes affected. So who's most at risk for SJS-TEN? First, studies show that individuals with cancer develop SJS or TEN at a rate 30 to 60 times higher than the general population. Also, individuals with connective tissue disease have a twofold increased risk of developing SJS or TEN. Also, individuals with HIV, they're at higher risk for SJS or TEN due to immune system dysregulation and the high-risk medications used to treat both HIV and associated opportunistic infections such as tuberculosis. Now, while SJS, TEN can occur at any age, older adults are more likely to develop the condition, and certain individuals and ethnicities are at higher risk for SJS or TEN due to genetic mutations that make these individuals more likely to have strong reactions to medication or a reduced ability to break down and clear medications. This includes ethnicities with a higher incidence of a specific HLA allele, such as those from Southeast Asia, Korea, Japan, and Europe. Individuals taking allopurinol, which I've mentioned a couple of times, if they also have impaired renal function and thus reduced clearance of the medication, and if they're on a higher dose, they're at much higher risk of developing allopurinol-related SJS or TEM. And those with a prior incidence of the condition or have a first-degree relative who's had the condition are at increased risk as well. Factors that increase an individual's risk of dying from epidermal necrolysis include being of older age, having sepsis, having a larger BSA affected, having a delayed transfer to a specialty center, and if they have granulocytopenia, which is a decrease in a specific type of white blood cell. In general, the mortality rate of toxic epidermal necrolysis is 25 to 30%, while the mortality rate with Stevens-Johnson syndrome is about 1 to 5%. 
So what are the complications of this condition? And oh boy, there are a lot. So one of those is mucosal involvement. So epidermal necrolysis can involve extracutaneous tissue, including the mucous membranes. Mucosal involvement most often involves the oral cavity, but can also involve the airway. And this puts the individual at higher risk for pulmonary complications. It can also affect the mucosa of the genitourinary tract and the GI tract. What about the eyes? When the eyes are affected, complications include reduced visual acuity that could be leading to blindness. The patient could have chronically dry eyes, sensitivity to light, and scarring of the cornea, among others. Genital involvement is present in up to 70% of cases, leading to severe pain, difficulty urinating, it can lead to urinary retention, which then sets the individual up for a urinary tract infection. Females can experience ulcerative vaginitis and other complications, which can lead to adhesions and long-term genitourinary dysfunction. Infection is another complication of epidermal necrolysis and occurs in up to 50% of patients with SJS or TEN, which brings with it a significantly higher mortality risk. In most cases, patients with epidermal necrolysis who develop infection die from sepsis or septic shock. The most common infections are staphylococcal and pseudomonas infections. And then other organs. Organ involvement can affect the liver, the kidneys, the lung, and the GI tract. Liver injury has been shown to occur in up to 30% of individuals with SJS or TEN, and those with diabetes, underlying liver disease, and hyperlipidemia are most at risk. Acute kidney injury is common in epidermal necrolysis, and some patients will even require temporary dialysis and be at significantly higher risk for death. Respiratory complications include lung injury due to sloughing of the bronchial epithelium. They could have atelectasis, pulmonary edema, and develop pneumonia. About 25% of individuals who experience respiratory complications require mechanical ventilation. And then complications of the GI tract include rectal bleeding, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and even esophageal ulceration. Then there are some hematologic complications like disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC. These occur in over 20% of patients with SJS or TEN. If you want to learn more about DIC, I will put a link to another episode where I talk all about that in the show notes. And that, my friend, is episode 173. And then, of course, the skin is affected, but it can also be affected long-term with some patients experiencing alopecia, which is hair loss, hyperhidrosis, which is going to be excessive sweating, and abnormal pigmentation. So now that you've got some background knowledge about epidermal necrolysis, or more specifically, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, now let's go through the nursing implications using the straight A nursing latte method. So we'll start with the letter L, which is look, which means how does the patient look? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? So the patient's signs and symptoms are going to vary 
depending on the phase of the illness and the presence of any specific complications. In the prodromal phase, signs and symptoms are flu-like and include fever and chills, those body aches that you associate with the flu, red eyes, and headache. This phase lasts two to three days and precedes any visible skin involvement. And then the condition progresses to involve cutaneous and possibly also extracutaneous symptoms somewhere between 4 and 28 days after exposure to the triggering agent. The initial cutaneous symptom of epidermal necrolysis or Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis is a rash of painful pink to dark reddish spots or macules that typically appear on the face, the torso, and the proximal arms and legs. And these macules spread outward as the condition progresses and commonly affect even the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. As the condition continues, the macules develop into fluid-filled blisters and there's extensive sheet-like detachment and erosions. Now, the patient will be in significant pain and can exhibit a wide range of complications like we just talked about, of course, depending on which areas of the body are affected. In addition to the skin, commonly affected areas are the lips, the oral cavity, remember we talked about the mucous membranes, the eyes and the genitals, though other organs like the GI tract and the lungs may also be involved. Specific symptoms could include difficulty swallowing because the esophagus is affected. The patient could have diarrhea. They could have painful urination. They could have vision problems, reduced visual acuity or dry eyes. They could have shortness of breath and even be coughing up blood. Another manifestation of epidermal necrolysis is Nikolsky sign, and I hope I pronounced the name right. This is a finding in which the top layers of the skin slip away from the layers underneath when lateral pressure is applied. And it was named after Dr. Nikolsky way back in 1896. So again, the patient's going to have prodromal symptoms that are flu-like, lasting about two to three days, and then that's followed up by this painful rash that starts more proximal and then progresses outward. As the rash develops, it turns into blisters, and then there's extensive sloughing of the skin as the epidermis detaches. The next letter in the latte method is an A, and that is for assessment. How are we going to assess this patient? So one of the most important things we can do is a very thorough head-to-toe skin assessment. We want to examine all of the patient's skin to determine which areas are affected and to determine total body surface area, which helps us kind of see how severe the condition is. Again, if it's under 10%, that's Stevens-Johnson syndrome. If it's more than 30%, it's going to be toxic epidermal necrolysis. And if it's in between, it's that SJSTEN overlap. A great idea is to utilize a skin diagram to designate which areas of the skin are affected and then update that daily to monitor progression. A Lund-Browder diagram might be something that you'll utilize to determine the percentage of TBSA affected. So that's your total body head-to-toe skin assessment. Next, you're also assessing pain. 
SJS and TEN are really, really painful and can cause significant pain for the patient. So do a thorough pain assessment along with that head-to-toe skin assessment, and then follow up regularly, hourly at least, with a more focused pain assessment so that you can monitor the patient's pain level and then monitor the response to any treatments that are provided. You're also assessing airway patency. Sloughing of the lining of the oral cavity and the airway can lead to airway compromise. Additionally, involvement of the oral cavity can lead to difficulty swallowing, which increases aspiration risk and could also compromise the patient's airway. Coughing, shortness of breath, hemoptysis, and increased oral secretions could all be signs of airway involvement. This patient requires further respiratory evaluation and close monitoring. They may need oral pharyngeal suctioning and other interventions to keep the airway clear. You're also assessing urine output. One complication of SJS and TEN is dysuria, which can lead to urinary retention. Utilize a bladder scanner to determine if the patient is retaining urine. Additionally, patients can lose a significant amount of fluid when large areas of the skin are involved, so you're keeping very careful track of I's and O's. Basically, when we look at the treatments for SJS and TEN, we kind of approach them like burns because there's loss of body surface area, just like there is in a burn. And a burn involves large losses of fluid. Same with SJS and TEN. We're also assessing the patient's temperature. Heat loss can occur through affected areas, which puts patients, especially those with that more severe form of TEN, at high risk for hypothermia. Additionally, these patients are at risk for infection. So you're keeping a watchful eye for elevated temperatures as well, though in some cases, a really massive infection can cause a lower than expected body temperature. So either one is abnormal, requires further investigation. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about the tests utilized to evaluate a patient with SJS or TEN. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So now let's talk about the test that we're going to use. That is the next letter in the latte method. T is for test. Both SJS and TEN are diagnosed through visual inspection of their symptoms and that rash and what's going on with the skin and presence of an underlying risk factor. If necessary, a skin biopsy may be performed and will show necrotic tissue and or detachment of the epidermis from the dermis. And then lots of different lab tests will be utilized to evaluate and monitor the patient. And some of these may be more specific depending on any potential complications the patient has. So one of those is a CBC with differential. Mainly we're using this to monitor 
for infection. We don't expect a lot of blood loss, but if the patient does have a coagulopathy, like maybe a hematologic complication or DIC, then we would be looking at red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit, platelets, all of that as well. With that, we're also looking at coagulation studies, again, because patients with SJS or TEN are at higher risk for a hematologic complication such as DIC. We're also monitoring electrolytes, just like a patient with a burn injury. These patients are at risk for electrolyte imbalances. We're also looking at the BUN and creatinine. Acute kidney injury is a complication of Stevens-Johnson syndrome and TEN. We're also looking at liver function tests, again, because hepatic impairment can occur. CRP and ESR, which are C-reactive protein and erythrocyte sedimentation rate, will be elevated in inflammatory states. And then procalcitonin may be utilized as an early indicator of bacteremia, especially in conjunction with hypothermia. Wound cultures are another lab test that will be utilized. Patients with SJS or TEN are, again, super high risk for infection. So the recommendation is for cultures to be obtained at frequent intervals during that acute phase. And then mycoplasma serology. If an obvious culprit cannot be identified, the condition may be related to mycoplasma pneumonia infection. So they may run a lab for that. And then chest x-ray or chest CT scan. These imaging studies may be ordered if the patient has respiratory complications. So the next letter in the latte method is another T. This one is for treatments, what treatments are going to be provided for a patient with this condition. So in addition to identifying and stopping the triggering medication, which is the most important thing we can do, treatment for the acute phase of SJS or TEN includes replenishing fluids, maintaining electrolyte balance, preventing hypothermia, providing comfort, preventing infection, caring for wounds, optimizing nutrition, and addressing organ dysfunction or other complications as needed. It is recommended that patients with greater than 10% TBSA involvement or worsening organ function be treated in a specialty unit such as a burn center. Okay, so let's first talk about fluids and electrolytes. That damaged skin is unable to retain fluids, and fluid losses can be significant, especially with larger areas of the body affected. Fluid requirements in the first 24 hours are estimated to be 2 mils per kilogram per body surface area percentage. And then ongoing fluid replacement is generally titrated to achieve optimal urine output of 0.5 to 1 mil per kilogram per hour. Additionally, electrolyte imbalances occur along with fluid losses, so these will be replaced as needed. We're also preventing hypothermia. Heat loss occurs through open wounds and can be significant, especially when larger areas of the skin are involved. Room temperatures are recommended to be kept between about 28 to 30 degrees Celsius. I did see some variability with this. That would be between 82.4 to 89.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And some patients may require external heating devices like bear hugger type blankets. We're also providing comfort. Pain management is essential as SJS and TEN are extremely, extremely painful and opioids are commonly utilized. Note that additional doses may be necessary during things like dressing changes and mobilization. 
In addition, take care to position the patient off affected areas whenever possible. And then of course, there's wound care. Meticulous wound care is vital for patients with SJS or TEN and may involve surgical debridement, manual scrubbing of the affected skin, or hydrotherapy, which helps clean wounds while removing dead tissue. Other wound care methods are going to involve skin grafts and biosynthetic dressings, which are applied after that surgical debridement takes place. And then in some cases, a more conservative approach to wound care may be utilized where that affected epidermis is not debrided. Instead, it's left in place kind of like a dressing. Non-adhesive dressings could also be utilized, such as petrolatum impregnated gauze, biosynthetic dressings, or a dressing containing silver, as long as the patient did not react to sulfonamides, because one of the silver impregnated dressings has a sulfonamide in it, but there are others that do not. So you want to make sure that you're using the proper one for the patient. But these are utilized to protect the skin and promote healing. And the skin is going to be gently cleansed with each dressing change, but not vigorously scrubbed or debrided like we would do maybe with more vigorous wound care. And then with that, we're also preventing and addressing infections. So the evidence shows that up to 50% of individuals with SJS or TEN develop an infection, with sepsis being the most common cause of death. Infection prevention is a vital component of your plan of care and includes the use of things like sterile gloves and sterile supplies. You're using your PPE, not so much to protect yourself from what the patient has, but to protect the patient from any pathogens that could be on your person. They may often be in reverse isolation. We're also using antiseptic cleansing solutions and, again, silver-imbued gauze materials. It's also recommended that cultures of wounds, blood, indwelling catheters, all those things that put the patient at risk for infection be obtained regularly. One resource I utilize said as frequent as every 48 hours. Antibiotics are utilized to treat bacterial infections as they occur. We're also optimizing nutrition. Nutrition should be started as early as possible to support the healing process. If eating is difficult or painful for the patient due to mucosal involvement, then enteral feeding is utilized. We also want to support elimination. Many patients with SJS or TEN develop dysuria and urinary retention due to erosions and adhesions of the urogenital area. Treatments utilized to prevent adhesions and promote healing include barrier creams, non-adhesive dressings, and topical corticosteroids. Female patients may benefit from SITS baths and suppression of menstruation, which reduces the risk for endometriosis and vaginal adenosis. Urinary catheters may be needed to promote elimination, but note the use of an indwelling catheter greatly increases the risk for infection. And then patients with GI tract involvement may have diarrhea, which can lead to infections of wounds on the buttocks or perineum. And it is imperative that patients be kept clean and dry, especially if they're intubated or immobile because they are critically ill. We're also going to provide respiratory support. A significant number of patients with SJS or TEN develop acute respiratory complications 
which can include pulmonary edema, atelectasis, pneumonia, and bronchial erosions. Up to 38% experience acute respiratory failure and require mechanical ventilation. Note that the mortality rate for ventilated patients increases to over 50%. Bronchoscopy may be utilized to evaluate the lining of the airways, remove sloughed epithelium, and diagnose pulmonary infections. Careful oropharyngeal suctioning may also be utilized to maintain airway patency. And then what about if the eyes are involved? Treatments to support the eyes when ocular involvement is present include lubricants for the eyes, saline rinses, topical antibiotics, and topical corticosteroids. In some cases, adhesions may need to be separated, ouch, that sounds painful, and patients with extensive sloughing may undergo amniotic membrane transplantation, which acts as a graft and provides a substrate for the growth of epithelial cells. And then What if DIC occurs, disseminated intravascular coagulation? These patients may be administered blood products such as fresh frozen plasma, red blood cells, and or cryoprecipitate as needed. And then another treatment is plasmapheresis. In this procedure, blood is removed from the body and the plasma is separated from other components. The plasma is run through a filter or centrifuge and returned to the patient without the autoantibodies or presence of the triggering agent associated with that autoimmune response. And then let's talk briefly about pharmacologic treatments. Currently, there is no standardized pharmacologic treatment for epidermal necrolysis. Some medications utilized include immune globulin or IVIG. However, the evidence shows there may or may not be significant benefit with this therapy. I believe that there is more research ongoing in this area. Immunosuppressants may be utilized to keep the body's immune system from attacking its own tissue, so you could see immunosuppressants used. Corticosteroids such as prednisolone, methylprednisolone, and dexamethasone may be used, but their efficacy has not at this time been definitively, definitively proven. Anti-tumor necrosis factor inhibitors such as etanercept and infliximab have shown promising results and additional studies are needed to confirm their efficacy. And cyclosporine has been shown to reduce mortality, especially when used within 24 to 48 hours of symptom onset. All right, the final letter in our latte method is an E for education. How do we educate our patient, our patient's family? So a really important factor to educate patients about is the triggering event or the triggering cause, if one can be identified so that the patient knows to avoid it in the future. You'll also be teaching patients and caregivers how to treat wounds and change dressings if the patient is not hospitalized and is going to be caring for wounds at home. It's also important to let the patient know that having SGS or TEN puts them at higher risk for developing it in the future. So they need to be able to recognize the early signs of the condition, which again is often those prodromal flu-like symptoms. Additionally, teach all patients to inform their healthcare providers that they've had SJS or TEN since this may affect which medications are prescribed. So there you have it. That is your overview of Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. I hope that you found it interesting like I did and helpful. 
And before we close out, let's take a minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Christina. And Christina says, yesterday I took the NCLEX and it cut off at 75 questions. I woke up this morning, searched my name, and now it's official that I'm a registered nurse. Nurse Mo, you are incredible, and I definitely wouldn't have made it without you. I started listening when I was a pre-nursing student back in 2019 and have truly enjoyed watching Straight Nursing blossom. To everyone still in school, know that you have the tools to set you up for success with Straight A Nursing. I highly recommend the planners and the podcasts, both this podcast and study sesh to help you learn when you're away from your desk. So thank you so much, Christina. I'm so, so proud of you. And for those of you who are interested in hearing a little bit more from Christina, we did a whole episode together about going to school with the chronic illness. And if you want to check that one out, I will put a link to that in the show notes so that you can go hear from Christina and see how she managed nursing school with a chronic illness. She really is an inspiration. So I hope to see you back here next week where we will be diving into a common neurological disorder, multiple sclerosis. So make sure you're following or subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. I will see you again soon. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing, a proud member of the Airwave Media Network. For more educational podcasts, check out airwavemedia.com And for more nursing-related content, go to straightanursingstudent.com. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.